Well, good morning, Sailorville Church. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Really, really great to have you. Uh, our pastor, Pastor Pat, is on his way to Mongo Togo right now. He emailed me this morning, and uh, he's preaching this evening. They're about five or six hours in front of us, and so maybe just in a couple hours he will be speaking there in Togo, and so we're praying for him of course, as well. I'm Jason Jackson, and I'm on staff here as well, and I just love having the opportunity to be with you this morning. We're going to make our way in Scripture slowly to Psalm 139. If you have a copy of Scripture there in front of you, maybe on a phone or device or your Bible, otherwise it will be on the screen behind us. My wife Meredith and I celebrated our 18-year anniversary of our wedding day this summer. It has been absolutely amazing being married. Marriage is so much better than I ever imagined and hoped that it could be. And also so much harder, right? Meredith and I have walked through more pain and more hurt and more struggle and more disappointment in marriage than we ever thought possible. Sin and the results of sin have profound consequences on our lives, don't they? And Profound consequences on our marriages, and one of those consequences is death. Our son Judah, who is turning six years old at the end of the summer, he turns six just a couple days uh, after he goes to school for the very first time. He'll be in kindergarten this coming fall, and many of you have told us that it's going to be harder on dad and mom than it's going to be on him those first few weeks, right? Thanks for that. Judah isn't our only child, though. He's, um, he's actually our fourth. And there were two more after him. The five times Meredith and I experienced the death of unborn children, the very personal consequence of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden and the subsequent sin of every human, including the consequence of our own sin. Miscarriages are the unintentional loss of pregnancy, and we're certainly not alone in our experiences. In fact, we know of several of you in this room that are part of our church that have gone through the excruciating loss of a child. And statistics say that about 20% of all pregnancies are going to end in miscarriage. Over the years, we've been through a journey of fertility and the barrage of treatments and tests and the amazing highs of pregnancy and the crushing lows of miscarriage. Throughout all of that, God was faithful. And we've had some hard conversations, though, and we were just talking about one of them this past week. We remember vividly sitting under the fluorescent lights in a tiny observation room in a clinic in downtown Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, where we used to live. The conversation with the doctor went something like this. He looked at us and said, you're pregnant. And of course, we were elated. But he made the mistake of pausing after that and then sharing this news. There are some abnormalities in the results of your blood work. We'd like to send you for another set of tests, and those tests will determine whether there are chromosomal issues with the fetus. Well, what, Doc, what kind of chromosomal issues are you talking about? Well, issues that would maybe give early indication that the baby could be born with a lower quality of life, that perhaps the baby would have Down syndrome or mental deficiencies or maybe even some profound physical abnormalities. And so we asked the doctor, what if the test does come back with those indications? 
well, then you would most likely choose to terminate the pregnancy. How would that work, Doc? Well, it's a simple process. It's almost painless, in fact. It's just an injection to the mother. The, the medication that we use is, is actually used in chemotherapy to attack cancer cells. But in your case, it would, it would be targeting the growing mass of tissue in the mother and dissolve the cells and eventually terminate the pregnancy on its own. So, Doc, you're saying that we'd have an abortion. Well, technically, yes, but you have to understand you'd be protecting the baby from experiencing a lower quality of life, and you'd be protecting yourself from the incredible burden of carrying and then caring for a child like that. Over the last 18 years or so, Meredith and I have had this conversation, or a variation of this conversation, with perhaps dozens of medical professionals. If you're new to Sailorville, or maybe you're watching online for the first time, we're in a summer series called Issues and Inspiration. And we, as a church, are declaring in this series that we won't, in fact, we dare not shy away from showing people that the Bible and that Jesus Christ himself and the gospel are vitally relevant to the difficult issues of life. So this morning, we're opening up a conversation about a topic that some have called the defining issue facing our generation. It's a topic that divides, it offends, and it shames. In some cases, it elicits anger and disgust. In other cases, confusion and pain. It's all around us, and yet a woman told me recently, it is the greatest secret in the church, even churches like ours. The issue today in our inspiration Issues and Inspiration series is the issue of abortion, and it affects every one of us. Statistics say one in four women before the age of 45 will have an abortion. In fact, it's probably more than that, because so many abortions go unreported. And of course, now guys, catch this, the impact of this issue isn't limited by gender. In every single case of abortion, men have been involved. You get that, right, guys? either as the partner of the pregnant woman, perhaps the one who performed the abortion or even paid for the abortion, or a future spouse or family member of the woman having an abortion. Nearly 41 million women will have an abortion this year worldwide. 41 million. A million of those will be abortions reported in our own country of the United States. About 4,000 right here in our state of Iowa in most recent reports where miscarriage is the unintentional or unwanted ending of a pregnancy. Abortion is the deliberate termination of a human fetus. And so the central question that fuels the heated debate over the issue of abortion is very, very simply this. When does human life begin? It sounds very easy, doesn't it? When does human life begin? Is it a fertilized egg? Is that a human? Or not until those cells begin to multiply? Or do those cells become a human when they develop brain waves or a heartbeat or even fingerprints? Does human life only begin when the fetus is declared as viable outside of the womb or perhaps when the mother goes into labor? Now, some claim that life doesn't begin until the moment of birth, but when is that moment exactly? Is it at baby's first breath? Or when the umbilical cord is cut and the baby is no longer physically connected to 
the mother. So the ultimate question is this. When do those tiny cells become a person? At fertilization or at birth or somewhere in between? Abortion is the deliberate determination of human pregnancy, and it's legal in all 50 states in our country. In fact, as the law stands today, if a pregnant woman on her way to an abortion clinic where her child would be legally killed, if on her way she's in a car accident, and that car accident causes the death of her unborn child, those who caused the car accident would be guilty of manslaughter and put into jail. If the child dies in the car accident, the ones responsible for the death are criminals. But if the child dies on the abortion table, just moments later, the death is considered normal or even necessary. In one instance, the child in utero is a human being. Moments later, it's what the law would refer to as simply fetal tissue. Jeannie Thomas, member here at Sailorville and director of the Alpha Women's Center in the Des Moines metro area, told me this last week, the absurdity of the rationale for abortion is this. A pre-born child is only a person and valuable if the mother wants it. I'll say that again. A pre-born child is only a person and valuable if the mother wants it. One author said this, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. You get that, right? So in other words, this quote is saying that we're only fooling ourselves if we think that people don't see abortion as killing a baby, this author says. If we don't actually admit that abortion is taking the life of a human, we're either idiots or we just don't care. Of course, you're here this morning. What is it, about 10 o'clock on Sunday morning in the Bible Belt? A quote like that doesn't surprise you. Of course we'd say that. But you wouldn't expect that quote to come from this woman, Faye Waddleton, who's the longest reigning president of the largest abortion business in the United States. We know it as Planned Parenthood. Waddleton, in fact, has argued as far back as 1997 that everybody already knows that abortion kills. But it doesn't stop there. Ann Faruti, the chief executive of the largest independent abortion business across the ocean in the United Kingdom, said this in a 2008 debate. We accept that the embryo is a living thing in the fact that it has a beating heart. It has its own genetic system within it. It is clearly human, she says, and we can recognize that it is human life. So don't miss the significance of these acknowledgments. Prominent abortion rights defenders publicly admit that abortion kills human beings. Every new life begins at conception. It's an irrefutable fact of biology. It's true for animals and true for humans. No matter what the circumstances of conception, no matter how long, how far along in the pregnancy, abortion always ends the life of an individual human being. So every successful abortion at every point in the pregnancy kills a genetically distinct person. The point here is this, there's simply no debate among honest and informed people, Christians and non-Christians alike, that abortion kills human beings. So if abortion is taking the life of another human being, why would someone ever make that tragic decision? 
According to Planned Parenthood on their website, there are several what they call valid reasons why people would choose to intentionally end a pregnancy. Listen to this and make your own evaluation. The number one valid reason is that they are just simply not ready to be a parent yet. Another valid reason could be it's not a good time in their life to have a baby. Perhaps they want to finish school or focus on work or achieve other goals before having a child. And maybe they're not in a relationship that they want to have a baby with. Or finally, they just don't want to be a parent. It's important to see what's happening here. And folks, without sounding too crass or too callous, Planned Parenthood's, what they call valid reasons for abortion, seem to indicate that abortion solves all the problems or the potential problems that giving birth might bring. In fact, on their website, Planned Parenthood claims most people are relieved and don't regret their decision to abort at all. The message is clear. Have this quick and safe procedure. In fact, it's normal. Lots of women do it. And then they go back to living the kind of life that they always wanted. Take this pill. It's painless. And then go back to focusing on your schoolwork, on your job, on your relationships. No baby means no consequences. The reality is, though, that the abortion process itself is painful. It's humiliating. And it's expensive financially and emotionally. I listened to one woman's story this last week who said this, the days and the weeks and the months that followed my abortion were traumatic and very dark. My life began to spiral out of control. I was consumed with guilt and I contemplated suicide. I knew that I wanted to die and that I didn't want to be on this earth anymore. Boy, it certainly doesn't sound like abortion is quick, safe, or consequence-free, does it? If life itself is at the center of this conversation, then it makes sense that we should consider the author of life. So what does God, the creator, say about human life? Let's step back, get a bird's eye view of what the Bible says about God's heart for human life. In the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we find some helpful, uncomplicated information that gives us insights into this issue and, by the way, several other issues that we face. Genesis 1 is the story of how God created all matter, okay? So he made the world and its surrounding universe. He separated night from day, earth from sea, mountains from valleys, plants from, from fish and birds and cattle. And now he comes to this incredible moment where he's about to create human life. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read this. The Trinity speaking together say, let us make mankind in our image. Catch what he said though. God the Trinity says, let's make mankind in our image. So this image thing is, is limited to human life. Only human life by God's design is made in the image of God. So as amazing and as beautiful and as colorful and as full of variety as the plant or animal kingdom may be, none of that has been created in the image of God. Only human life. So only human life can walk and talk with and fellowship with the creator. Animals can't do that. Plants don't talk to God only human beings enjoy this privilege because only humans are created in God's image. Human lives are more valuable than plants and animals because humans are made in the image of God. It shouldn't surprise us then as we keep walking through the Old Testament when we get to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, part of the Ten Commandments, we read, You shall not murder. 
shouldn't take intentionally the life of an innocent person. Why? Because there's something distinctly precious and unique about human life. In God's view, human life is so precious and so valuable that he commands that it must be protected and it must be preserved. Essentially, this is God's way of saying, listen, life is so important that no one has the right to take it. Don't do anything to end it. Let it live because all humanity represents my handiwork. It's mine, God says, to do with as I please. My image in some wondrous and some kind of mysterious way is stamped onto every human life. By the way, this image of God is why we can actually be more like Jesus. We say here at Sailorville, we want to be a church that makes more people more like Jesus. We can do this because we're already created to reflect God's image, to be like him in some way. We're not God and we'll never be Jesus either, but catch this, just as the child looks to his dad and says, Daddy, I want to be like you one day, and he can be because he's a reflection of his father's image in the same way we can be like Jesus. Because we're created in his image already. And that image-bearing, precious human life is formed by God in the womb. Look at how Job says it in Job chapter 31. I'll read some context and then you'll catch it in verse 15. Verse 13 begins like this. If I have denied, Job says, justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they have a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called into account? And now watch this. Did not he who made me in the womb make them my servants also? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? You got that, right? Verse 15 gives the reason why Job would be guilty if if he treats his servants as anything less than human equals. The issue isn't really that one may have been born free or wealthy and the other one might have been born poor or even born into slavery. The issue goes way back before birth. When Job and his servants were being formed in the womb, the key person at work was God. That's the premise of Job's argument. There's no life that's more or less valuable than another. Let me say that again. There's no life that's more or less valuable than another. In fact, what it comes down to is this. All human life has value because God creates all human life. And we see this in the New Testament too. In fact, watch how Jesus confronted his own friends, his closest followers, his disciples, as they tried to keep little ones from approaching him in Luke chapter 18. Now they, that's parents and others, were bringing infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked those people. But Jesus called called them to him saying, let the children come to me and don't hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus loves the little children. That song had it right all along. By the way, the the word for infant in Luke chapter 18, verse 15 up here, written by Dr. Luke, is the same word that, that Dr. Luke uses to describe the unborn child, John the Baptist, in Elizabeth's womb earlier in Luke chapter 1. So clearly, Dr. Luke here doesn't make a distinction between the value of a life inside the womb and the value of a life outside the womb. It's Dr. Luke. He would get it, right? He's not a fisherman or a tax collector. He's a doctor. The Bible teaches that all human life, beginning at conception, is made in the image of God. That each and every person, regardless of their health 
or their IQ or their race or their abilities or the way they look or their financial situation or where you come from or what you've done or any other factor is just as valuable to God because all human life has value because God creates all human life. And that's why abortion is wrong. But most of us, perhaps in this room, already get that. We may already believe that abortion is wrong. We might even say that we could defend it, that we could debate against it. We could argue that abortion is wrong. Some of us would even picket abortion clinics or politic for the rights of the unborn or even stand on a street corner with a megaphone condemning women who have had abortions. And you may be right. But a wise man very near and dear to all of us, who's in Africa right now, said this, it doesn't matter if you're right, if your spirit is wrong. Did you catch that? It doesn't matter if you're right, if your spirit is wrong. This is how Jesus said it when he was asked by an expert in the Old Testament. Someone who knew the Bible came to him and said, Hey, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, what, what, which one of those hundreds, law, hundreds of laws is the most important one? I want to know so that I can be right. I want to follow that one and do that one so that I can prove to everybody else that I'm right and that they're wrong. And Jesus' response? It's amazing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest in the first commandment. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor, love your fellow human as you love yourself in Matthew chapter 22. See, being right if your spirit is wrong isn't the way we prove that we're Christians. I'm going to say that again because some of you need to hear that. Being right if your spirit is wrong isn't the way we prove that we're Christians. Jesus says, they'll know you are one of my followers if you love me and if you love others. In fact, if you can't love someone else because they're a sinner, then you have a higher standard than Jesus. One woman I talked to this past week said, the percentage of women in the church who have had an abortion might actually be greater than those outside the church because the church has not been traditionally a safe place for women to share their abortion stories. Post-abortive women can be shackled by shame and paralyzed by their pain. And when they feel like outcasts in the church, they fight hard to carry their secret. And many, many, many times it's all alone. Friends and Sailorville Church family, can we please change this? Can we please be honest and open about abortion and other issues and still care for broken people? Can we speak the truth, but speak it in a way that's clearly loving? Can we be a Bible-believing, gospel-centered church that draws a hard line against sin, but that draws sinners close to Jesus? Can we stop treating some sins as stigmas that should be kept hidden and remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? That's all of us. That's a huge category. That's every single person. God says we've all sinned. Ladies and young women and teenagers and little girls, if you're here this morning, the world says that abortion is inevitable for many of you. Whether you've already had an abortion or you're right now considering an abortion sitting here or listening online or you'll be faced with the decision one day 
I want to talk to you just for a couple minutes. If you're looking for hope this morning, I believe God's word has that for you. Don't miss what God says to you through David in Psalm 139. Here's God's heart for all human life. Catch this. God knows you better than anyone. God knows you better than anyone. The first verse of Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I don't get it, David says. Each of these verses adds a different color to the picture of God's intimate knowledge of you. He knows your heart. He knows your fears. Ladies, he knows your thoughts. He knows your failures, your frustrations, your dreams, your motives. He knows your past. He knows your present. And he knows your future. He understands you. He gets you. I was introduced to a website recently called Shout Your Abortion. Shout Your Abortion. Essentially, the goal of the organization is to what they call normalize abortion, to saturate the sound waves with positive stories of abortion. I began reading through these stories from women all over the world who had unwanted pregnancies and then chose to abort their babies. And what I kept reading in these stories was each woman's cry to be known, to be heard, to leave the secrecy and the stigma of abortion behind and to have their stories told, to shout their abortion. And I think that's natural. It's part of who God created each of us to be, to be known and to want to be loved. In fact, we're created to yearn for that. We say in our Group Connect class, there's sort of an orientation for people trying to get into cell groups here at Sailorville, that we're created for community. We're formed for family. But we won't ever be fulfilled by simply shouting our stories we won't ever be complete until we realize that God knows us better than anyone else and that he still loves us. He knows us and he loves us. And this is the gospel, is it not? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Ladies, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You know the verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us or toward us in that while we were still sinners far away from him, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. God sent his son into the world for you. Ladies, li listen to what God says about you right now. You are known and you are loved. Second, God will always be with you. God will always be with you. 
Look at verse 7. David says this, Where shall I go in Psalm 139, Lord, from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall not cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. David comes to the Logical conclusion, how can I escape? Where can I hide from God? If God knows everything, he knows the choices I've made, he's heard my lies, he saw what I did last week or last month or even last year, where can I go? David's fear of total exposure moved him to wonder if there was somewhere he could go to hide to keep parts of his life a secret from God. But God wouldn't let him run away. David finds out that God won't ever let him go, that he can't go anywhere to hide from God. And it's not because he's in trouble or God's trying to punish him. It's because God loves him. David says, your hand will guide me, gently nudging him one way or another. Your right hand will hold me fast, providing comfort. We get this, right? I remember when I was a kid holding my dad's hand, he would show me which way to go as we were walking without saying a word just directing me with his hand. Sometimes I would stumble, trip, stub my toe, and if I was holding his hand, he would protect me from falling. That comfort, that protection, that safety in God's hands, we understand that. Emily read it earlier. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And folks, abortion is some of the darkest, deepest shadow that you may ever face. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the gospel. If you belong to Jesus, he'll never leave you or forsake you. He can't. He loves you. Ladies, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you are in God's family, you're never alone. He'll never leave you or let you down. Third, God made you wonderfully. God made you wonderfully. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 139. For I formed you, for you formed my inward parts, David said. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. We often think about this passage as it relates to God's interaction with the baby inside the mother's womb. And that is accurate. Listen, when you're pregnant, God is creating a masterpiece inside of you. He's skillfully and wonderfully combining chromosomes and ordering DNA and multiplying cells right away at conception. Like an artist, David says, God is painting a living portrait one brushstroke at a time. Or a seamstress knitting together a living garment thread by thread. God is at work making someone wonderful inside of you. But if you're hearing this today, then that's how God made you too. 
God never saw you as a mistake. He never called you unwanted. You were never unintended. He'll never refer to you as just a blob of tissue. He never will. If you're a child of God, watch how he sees you. It'll be up on the screen from Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he has chosen us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and to be blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to adoption, to sonship. We are his children through Jesus Christ, Paul says in Ephesians. In accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace that he has lavished on us. He's freely given us his grace in the one that he loves. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. We're redeemed through his blood. Forgiveness, we've been forgiven in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We are rich in God's grace, ladies and gentlemen. That's who God says you are. And teenage girl, if you're here this morning, your worth doesn't come from your looks or how smart you are or how that guy treats you. Your worth comes from the creator. You are his treasured creation, made in his image. God loves you. He knows you. He wants you. And he will never leave you. You are God's masterpiece. And then finally, God gives hope and forgiveness. Drop down to verse 23 in Psalm 139. God gives hope and forgiveness. David comes to this conclusion, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous, any wicked, any evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David comes to the end of this psalm and he says, God, I'm laid bare before you. I don't want to keep any secrets from you. I confess you know me. I'm asking for your forgiveness and I want you to be my leader and guide from now in this life and for all of eternity. I can't help but be reminded of a conversation that Meredith and I had with a couple here at Sailorville just a few years ago, just a few days ago. This couple's married now, but before they knew each other, the woman got pregnant and chose to have an abortion. Several years later, God brought the two of them together and they got married, and the wife kept her abortion from her husband, believing that he could never love her if he knew the truth about her past. You ever feel that way, by the way? So-and-so will never love me if they know the truth about my past. So this lady agonized over her secret, feeling like this husband would have never agreed to marry her if he had known about it. After all, he, she wasn't the person that he thought she was, and he had nothing to do with her choice to have an abortion. He hadn't done that to her. He didn't even know her back then. But finally, she decided she couldn't hide it anymore, that she didn't want to keep any secrets from him, and she told him. What would he do? How would he react? How would, how would you react if someone told you that, that you love? Church family, how will we react when someone comes to us and tells us about their past? Well, this is what he did. He opened his arms wide, and he wrapped them around her, and he held her tight, and then he said this, there's nothing that you have done or ever could do or ever will do that will make me love you any less. Nothing will stop my love for you. Catch this. I don't love you because of what you've done. I love you because of who you are. Isn't that beautiful? 
He embraced her. He forgave her. He gave her hope. And today he's still loving her and leading their family. It's an amazing story, isn't it? But it's not just one couple's story. It's all of our story. Every single one of us. We're all broken. We're all sinners. Men and women, we're all carrying the burden of our terrible sins. But there's forgiveness. There's embrace. And there's hope in the arms of Jesus. Friends, come with your past. Jesus will give you a new future. Come with your burdens. He says he'll carry them because he can. Come with your brokenness. He is the great doctor. He's the physician. Come with your abortion, your pornography, your pride, your lies, your unfaithfulness. He is the great forgiver. God's heart is to give hope and forgiveness. And if you haven't experienced that or you're looking for hope in a, in a procedure or in a pill or in a person, come today, even right now, to the true giver of hope and forgiveness. Repent. Trust in Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, the gospel, and receive abundant life now and eternal life with him forever. Lord, thank you for truth. Thank you for the standard of your character that we see in your word. As Francis Schaeffer said, we don't need to make up our own standard. We already have one in your word. Lord, I pray this morning. This is a hard and heavy subject. And Lord, we know that there are men and women in this room that have been affected by choices, decisions, by abortion even. I pray, Lord, that your heart would speak very clearly to each and every one of them this morning. That they would see that they are known more than they could ever even know themselves. That they're loved. That they've been made wonderfully. That you'll never leave them or forsake them. And God, that you are the true hope giver, the true peace maker, and the true forgiver. Lord, thank you. Thank you for offering to set us free if we accept you as our personal Savior. In your precious name, amen.